Morning, everybody. Today's uh, scripture reading is coming from the books of uh, Philippians, chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. If you want to follow along. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but, but empty himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that, the name that is above every name. So at, the name. so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just uh, making you aware, if you were not already, that I have returned to producing the sermon handouts. I'm putting them at the entrances we are using to the auditorium. And for those of you who are with us downstairs, I, I have placed some down there as well. Also, if you're worshiping with us online, you can still download that document on the Watch Live page. I, nothing? I did. Oh, hey, this is why. Good job, Chad. Bonus points to Chad Allen today. You haven't really missed anything. I'm talking about sermon handouts. So anyway, I'm just letting you know the sermon handouts are out by the doors. They're online. I'll, I post them on Saturday evening, so if you want to download one, in advance, you can. I do also have them downstairs for those who are worshiping with us. So, well, that was fun start. Some of you will be familiar with the name Chan Gailey. He was a five-year head coach at Georgia Tech. He also was a head coach in the NFL for two different teams, the Cowboys and Bills, though I don't know that I would put that on my resume. Uh, but before all that, Chan Gailey was a head coach at Troy State University in South Alabama back in 1983, 1984. When he was with that school, he led them to the NCAA Division II National Championship, which they won in 1984. Now, we're not as familiar with NCAA Division II. That doesn't register on our radar the way that Division I always has. And, and, and during the week, or the week before that championship game, he was on his way to the practice field, when a phone call came to his office and his secretary ran outside and said, Coach, you've got a phone call. Well, he's really busy. He wants to win this big game. And so he doesn't want to be distracted with a phone call. So he tells his secretary to take a message. And she says, but coach, but coach, it's Sports Illustrated. Now, if you're familiar with Sports Illustrated, you know that it, for many years it has been the most prominent magazine in sports. And, and all of a sudden, Chan Gailey thinks, wow, Sports Illustrated, just imagine 
if they wrote an article on Troy State University? What would that do for our program? What, what would that do for my career? And as he's running back to the office, he's, he's imagining what the photo might be. Would it be him standing posed prominently and strong, or would it be in action with him on the field? Would he be running out of a tunnel with his team? So he's imagining what this article would be and what it would do for his, his program, for his career and all this stuff. He gets back to the office, picks up the phone, says hello. And the person on the other, other end of the line says, is this Chan Gailey? He said, he very confidently asserts, yes. And that person from Sports Illustrated said, Hi, Mr. Gailey, we were just calling to see if you wanted to renew your subscription. <laughs> you know, humility can come in some of the most fantastic ways, can it? And today, humility is the subject of the hour. Because in Philippians chapter 2, in those first 11 verses... Paul's got some things to say about being humble. You know, we're in the midst of this series on the book of Philippians called Finding Joy in the Journey, and it's been our goal every week to look into the text to see what issue Paul is talking about and how joy can be found in the midst of that. And humility is one of those characteristics that's not prominent in our culture or in our world. It's not highly praised or really highly sought by most people. But here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul indicates that humility is a trait we should all be in pursuit of. Did you notice there in chapter 2 of Philippians in verse 3, he called on Christians to, in humility, count others more significant than themselves. And then if you skip down to verse 8, he points to Christ as the model of humility, saying that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And I think Paul is saying that we can find joy in humility because it unites us with Christ. We can find joy in humility because it models Christ. Is there any greater joy in life than being like Christ? See, when you embrace humility, you're embracing a, a, a Christ-like characteristic. But humility is not our native tongue. It doesn't come natural for us. Think about it. When a baby is born, does a baby have humility? Do infants have humility? Absolutely not. All a baby can think is about himself or herself. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I need some attention. And if a baby doesn't get that, what do they do? They throw a fit. And I'm about to have one of those. <laughs> Babies are not naturally humble. Babies are naturally selfish. We're all born that way. We have to be taught humility. We have to learn selflessness. And so as a child grows older, as a child matures, we teach them to share. We teach them to play with others. We teach them to be polite. We teach them that they're not always going to get what they want. And in so doing, what are we teaching them? We're teaching them humility. Humility is not our native tongue. And so today, we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about what humility is, based on what is said here in Philippians chapter 2. And the first thing you need to know about humility 
is that humility is intentional. Scripture indicates quite consistently, as a matter of fact, that humility is a choice. You have to choose to be humble. It's not that some people are born that way and some people aren't. It's a choice that every individual has to make. So you have language in the Bible that communicates this idea of humility as a choice. You have Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, where Paul instructs us to put on, among other things, humility. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, Peter instructs us to clothe ourselves in humility. Now, when you get up in the morning and you get dressed, does it happen automatically or you have to choose something? Now, some of you have particular uniforms you might have to wear to go to work, particular outfits that are approved for work. That limits your choices, but you still have to choose to put it on. You see, in that language of put on or clothe yourselves with, that language is indicative of a choice you have to make. Humility is something you have to choose to dress yourself in. But I wonder how many times in our lives we failed to choose to be dressed in humility and as a result could be accused of God of indecent exposure in that regard. Because the world around us doesn't operate on humility, as I alluded to a little bit ago. The world around us believes in pride. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's a have-it-your-way world. It's a focus-on-yourself world. And so the world around us doesn't dress in humility, and so oftentimes that bleeds into our own lives, and we struggle to make the choice to be humble. But the Bible says there in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself. In other words, nobody made Jesus humble. He chose it for himself. And this is best exemplified by a story that you are, are probably very familiar with. It comes from John chapter 13. It's the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In those first 11 verses of John chapter 13, you have this, this situation where Jesus is dining with his disciples. It's the Last Supper that Brother Gene was uh, alluding to in his communion remarks when, when, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And before or during the course of that meal, Jesus made a very unusual decision. A decision to wash their feet. Now, in that day and age, in that culture, the host of a particular home had the responsibility as part of his hosting duties to ensure that the feet of his guests are washed. Now, you have to remember, they didn't have nice paved streets back then. They didn't have concrete sidewalks and asphalt roads. They didn't have cars that transport them from point A to point B. So they walked everywhere they went, and they walked on dusty, dirty, muddy terrain. And they didn't have Nikes and Sperry's and whatever name brand shoe you want to bring up. They had sandals. They had open-toed shoes. 
So their feet got nasty. So it was a courtesy, a, an expected courtesy that when you entered somebody's home and, and you were there as their guest, that they would see to it that your feet would get cleaned. But the host wouldn't do the cleaning. No, the, the, the person who did the cleaning was whoever had the lowest standing in the home. In most homes, you would have a servant who was employed for that purpose. And the lowest servant would be the one to take care of the foot washing. If you were a home that didn't have a servant, then maybe you would have your children do it. All right, Micah, when we get home, I need you to wash my feet, okay? <laughs> she just shook her head no. So you would have the person of lowest standing in the home do the foot washing because it was such a humiliating task. You see, children might wash the feet of their parents. A wife might wash the feet of her husband. A soldier might wash the feet of his commander, but it was never the reverse. Never did the commander wash the feet of the soldier or the husband wash the feet of the wife or the parent wash the feet of the child because it was so humiliating. And yet at this dinner, a dinner hosted in somebody else's home, a dinner in which he is the teacher and they are the students, Jesus grabs a towel and grabs a basin of water and starts washing feet. He chose to do that. He chose humility. And he didn't just choose it that day when he washed feet. He chose it when he left heaven and came here to live like you and I. Humility is a choice. It's intentional. And if Jesus can make that choice, then you and I should as well. But not only is humility intentional, humility is relational. Prior to the description of Jesus' humility here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul wrote to the Philippians imploring them to choose humility. And look at what he said, verses 1 through 4 of Philippians chapter 2. He said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now there are a couple of things worth noting about these, these instructions here. Notice that Paul asked this congregation to complete his joy by being of the same mind. Remember, Paul's writing from prison when he wrote this letter. I'll tell you this, if I were in prison, you know what would complete my joy? Getting out of prison. But for Paul, completing his joy had more to do with the church in Philippi than it did with himself. That's because Paul's greatest concern is not his condition, it's their condition. He's been informed that this church that he loves is in turmoil. Just a couple chapters later, you get to Philippians chapter 4. I've alluded to this earlier in this series, but in Philippians chapter 4, there's two women in the church there in Philippi, and they're not getting along. Euodia and Syntyche are their names. We're not specifically told what their issue is, but it's significant enough that Paul doesn't mind naming names and calling on the whole church to help these ladies deal with their issue. 
See, there's a problem in Philippi. And that's Paul's chief concern, even when he's stuck in prison. But not only that, when we look at verses 1 through 4, we also notice that Paul told them what they would have to do to resolve this conflict, this turmoil that's happening in the church there. In verses 3 through 4, I know I've read it, but we'll read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Returning to that issue that's happening in the church in Philippi, between Yodia and Syntyche, I personally don't think it was a doctrinal issue. Because Paul never hesitated to correct a doctrinal issue. Paul never hesitated to identify truth when there was a flawed view of it. Paul never hesitated to correct when there was a doctrinal problem. So I don't think this is a doctrinal dispute. Instead, based on these instructions that appear here in verses 1 through 4, I think it's fair to conclude that the problem happening there was a relational problem. In other words, I think Paul is trying to communicate to this church that the conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, between these two sisters, is that neither one of them is considering the other one to be better than themselves. Neither one of them is looking to the interests of the other, only to the interests of themselves. They're both selfishly focused on their own agenda. And the solution to the problem, according to Paul, is for them to both employ some humility. So I think what Paul is saying is that humility affects our relationships. He's concerned about the church in Philippi while he's stuck in prison because he cares about his relationship with that congregation. He cares about them and their condition. Humility's relational, and Paul's demonstrating humility right here. And he's calling on this church to step in and help these two sisters resolve their conflict by employing some humility because humility is relational. Humility affects our relationships. The lack of humility in the church in Philippi was driving a wedge between two sisters and preventing that congregation from experiencing the joy of fellowship, of unity, and a family. Because humility is relational. But maybe the hardest part of humility is the realization that humility is deferential. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, is such a difficult passage to read. We've read it twice, three, actually three times already. But it's such difficult instructions to accept. But in those verses, Paul's instructing the church to value each other above themselves. And, and he's instructing Christians to look not to their own interests, but to the interests of others, to prioritize somebody else's will and need. I want to point out one particular word that Paul uses here, and particularly in verse 4. It's the word look. It's a pretty simple word, a pretty uh, well-used word. That word look doesn't seem like it'd be a big deal. But the Greek word behind it is skopeo. Now, skopeo may sound familiar to you because it's the word from which we get the term scope. And we know what a scope is, a telescope, a microscope, a scope you put on your gun. We understand the idea of a scope. This Greek verb, skopeo, 
It means more than just looking at something. It means to contemplate it, to focus on it, to fix your eyes on it. To direct your attention to it. In other words, to scopeo something is to intentionally focus all your attention on it. And then what Paul is saying is that we need to intentionally focus on others to determine in what ways we can defer to them. Now you probably just heard that sentence and were slightly uncomfortable with it. Because in our culture, any form of deference or submission is taken as a sign of weakness and defeat. But why have we let culture define what strength is? Doesn't it take more strength to be able to surrender your will than to advance it? Doesn't it take more strength to prioritize someone else? Doesn't it take more strength to focus on the needs of others than on your own? In fact, I would contend that one's ability to operate selflessly is a sign of maturity because as I talked about earlier, we're born naturally selfish and we have to learn to be unselfish. Heard a story about a children's home out in Texas that one year compiled a list of of, of presents that the children there want to receive for Christmas. And a group of people went out and bought those presents and delivered them to the children's home and were helping to pass them out when they suddenly noticed an eight-year-old boy walking around with a girl's doll. And they instantly thought to themselves, oh, we've made a mistake. We gave him the wrong gift. Let's go get that doll back and let's find out what he really wants. That way we can give it to him. When someone approached that boy and, and and uh, tried to obtain the doll and find out what he really wanted, what they learned is he asked for that doll. And he asked for that doll because his, his sister was being brought to see him at the children's home by her foster family for Christmas. And the only way he knew he could have a gift for her was if he asked for one through this route. And so instead of getting himself a gift, he got a gift he could give to his sister. Now that's scopeoing somebody. I know that was horrible Greek English there, Jay. Forgive me. That's looking to the interest of others above your own. How many of us do that? When you get home from work, do you spot your spouse and think to yourself, how can I make this day better for him or for her? When you go to work, do you think to yourself, how can I benefit those around me today? When you come to worship? Do you think, what can I get out of this today? Or do you think, what can I give to others today? You see, if we will start practicing this scopeo idea that's here in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, it will change our interactions in such a way that we won't have Euodias and Syntyches anymore. And we'll be more like Christ. And I want you to realize this, Paul didn't just preach this, he practiced it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul addressed the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. It was a divisive issue in the first century church. Now Paul asserted that eating meat sacrificed to idols was not wrong in and of itself. 
In Romans chapter 14, I know I mentioned another passage. I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 8, but in Romans chapter 14, he addressed the same issue. And he said, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He knew that it's not wrong to eat that meat. But he also acknowledged that eating meat sacrificed to idols had the potential to be a stumbling block to some of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you know what Paul's conclusion on the matter was? 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13, he said that if eating meat caused his brother to stumble, then he would never eat meat again. In other words, even though Paul knew there was nothing wrong with eating meat, he cared more about the effect it had on others and therefore was willing to defer to them. And right after Paul told us to be humble here in Philippians chapter 2, he appealed to the example of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I think the point that he was making is that we serve a God who humbled himself for us. So doesn't that mean we should be willing to humble ourselves for others? See, humility is deferential. And one final thought on humility. It's essential. I'm going to step outside of Philippians to make this last point, but earlier I talked about Jesus washing the disciples' feet as an example of his humility. And there, there's something that Jesus said at the conclusion of that event that's worth mentioning. It's in John chapter 13 and verse 14. After he washed the disciples' feet, he said, If I then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. That word ought connotes the idea of responsibility or duty or obligation. In fact, the Greek word that is translated here is a financial term that indicates a matter of indebtedness. In other words, when Jesus said you ought to wash one another's feet, he was in effect saying, you owe it to me to wash one another's feet. And the point is that humility is an expectation the Lord has placed on us because of the humility he first demonstrated toward us. And because it's an expectation of his, that means showing humility to one another is just as important as showing love to one another or encouraging one another or praying for one another or bearing one another's burdens. It's just as important as all those other relational instructions that we receive. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 in particular of 1 Peter chapter 5. About halfway through 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, Peter provides these instructions, which we've referenced briefly. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. There's two basic facts about humility that this passage points out. The first is that humility will be rewarded because the text says, humble yourselves so that at the proper time, God may exalt you. Humility will be rewarded by God. The second fact is that failure to be humble now will result in opposition from God later. 
because the text summarizes some Old Testament teachings when it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Both of these facts point to the fact that humility is essential because it affects how God looks at us as well as whether or not God will reward us. So you can either choose to be humble now and be rewarded later, or you can choose to be prideful now and be humbled by God on that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 say. See, humility, it's essential. And right now, we need humility more than ever. You know, it's been an interesting year, hasn't it? That's probably the understatement of a lifetime. It's been a really challenging year for us. We went 11 weeks without being able to be in one another's presence for worship. That was hard. That was long. That was a true challenge. 11 weeks of physical separation. And yet Satan couldn't harm the church by physical separation. But we've gone one week. One week of debating this. And more harm has been done to the church debating this than 11 weeks of physical separation. And I'm not going to use the pulpit to push an agenda. I'm not here to tell you whether or not you need to be wearing that mask. But I am here to tell you that the way we treat one another matters. And we all need a lot more humility on such a subject as this. I'm not trying to tell you whether you should put it on. I'm trying to tell you that the way you approach one another and speak to one another and treat one another that's what matters. Because I'm seeing a lot of Christians who are taking to social media and they have no humility towards their brother or sister in Christ. And I'm afraid that more damage, more harm is going to be done to the church over this subject than 11 weeks of separation. And I know some of you are going to be tempted to go home and take to social media today and utilize my sermon or this passage as ammunition for your position? And if that's what you're planning to do, then more than likely you've already failed at clothing yourself in humility. In fact, might I suggest that all of us as Christians take a break from social media for a while? Can I get an amen to that? This is not an amening church, I get that. But every once in a while I say something worthwhile and we can amen it. We need to stop letting the world dictate how we're going to treat each other. And we need to start treating each other with humility because right now we're on the cusp of having a lot of Yodias and Syntyches. And that's not what God intended. So I'm going to close out reading this passage one more time. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Are you living that? Do you have that kind of humility in your life? Because there's joy in it. And the joy is found in the fact that it brings you closer to Christ. Today, we look at humility in the context of joy. And maybe you've lacked it. Maybe you haven't chosen it. Well, today you can make that choice. And the most humble choice you can ever make is to submit, surrender your life to Christ. Because only through being buried with Him in baptism can your sins be forgiven. Maybe today that's the choice you need to make. Or maybe today you need to repent of your lack of humility or request God's help as well as this congregation's in being a more humble person. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Oh!